You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. This is Abraham. And this is Shane. And so today we are going to try and wrap up part two of talking about a hierarchy of needs. Yeah, no, this will be great. Uh, I think, and I think starting this episode, more of my needs were met this time than the last time. So I think oh, great. That we're, I think that we're golden now. Perfect. You made it to the top of the triangle. <laughs> I've made it to one of the seven or eight levels. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. That's wonderful. I'm glad to hear it. I actually do want to really quickly do a recap. I would generally suggest that if you did not hear the first part of this, um, I'd recommend going back and listening to that. Um, these can probably fairly enough stand on their own, but they're certainly going to be building on. This one will build on some of the concepts and topics that we discussed in the previous episode. So it might be worth going back and listening to that one if you haven't already. But we're going to be continuing on with our discussion of the hierarchy of needs. I really didn't think initially that this was going to take two episodes. I thought we'd be able to do it in one, but we um, we went on for a long time. We surprised and, ourselves. Yeah, we did. And we had a lot to say. And so it really made a lot more sense to try and split it into uh, two separate episodes. So let's quickly recap what we covered last time. One of the things that we talked about is that, well, just, I guess, basically describing the hierarchy is that Initially, there were five basic levels that advanced in order from the more basic to the more developed, I guess, in terms of the things that motivate a person, right? Yeah, I mean, it really kind of starts on this foundational piece. And we talked about the, you know, as as somebody who is getting into psychology, getting really acclimated to that triangle shape. Because we <laughs> right. really starts with that idea, you know, this it, we're, the hierarchy needs starts with that foundational piece. It talks about um, things like substance or your your basic biological needs, and then kind of builds upon that, right? Yep. So the next one after that is that safety um, need, which involves order, uh, lawfulness, protection, and obviously just generally feeling like you are not being threatened in one capacity or another. Yeah, and then you've got loving and be- or love and belonging, which talks about more like your social relationships. Sometimes sex is l- lumped into there, and really kind of talks more about that piece where people want to. And have the need to feel like they belong to a group or within a relationship or something to that effect. And then after that, you've got uh, your basic esteem, which is both the esteem that you hold toward yourself as well as the esteem that you feel from others with respect to sort of how well respected um, you are and uh, and how you respected you feel uh, sort of how well you respect yourself as well. Having some dignity and that sort of thing. Yeah. And then the original hierarchy caps off at self-actualization, which is still kind of difficult to define, but really kind of talks about the idea that people are motivated by living into your own values. So it's like kind of like the the ultimate being, right? That's kind of what Maslow was saying is like, you have achieved everything you could possibly achieve. You are the best possible you. You have reached your ultimate potential. At the top of the self-actualization pyramid, you become the Buddha. That's it. <laughs> um, yeah. And then later, uh, we're added three more, at least. And one of those was uh, cognitive needs, just talking about uh, essentially those being motivated by things that that are interesting to you, I guess, intellectually speaking. Yep. And then it talks about, too, aesthetic needs. So it talks more about like the need for beauty and that kind of... I don't know if it was really well defined, but it really kind of dug, dug into that idea that, um, you know, we just need some, some, some pretty in our lives, right? <laughs> some art <laughs> and so- some lovely things in creativity uh, and I guess uh, seeking to appreciate the, the, I don't know, the 
it, unique <laughs> visual things in the world. This is a terrible way of saying that. I don't know. Uh, the last one was uh, transcendent needs, um, especially these uh, these ideas of things that are bigger than you that 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 drive you that feel like they are um, they're the most important sort of outside of the scope of your tangible everyday objects. But those those things that that really are the big picture stuff. I could think about. You know, I'm gonna do. I'm gonna take some action now because it's gonna help someone 100 years from now, type of thing. Yeah, and, it's, and I think that that one covered too, like things like spirituality and whatnot, right? That covered like that idea of like the the higher level of being and something beyond our plane of existence, our mortal coil. Sure. Yeah. The the idea of there being a a higher being, a higher calling, sort of thing that. Um, those things related to that, again, sort of bigger than oneself, metaphorically speaking, are going to be motivating uh, for someone to pursue uh, activities inside of that realm. And I guess one more thing to talk about inside of the the overall uh, theme of the hierarchy of needs is that essentially you have to fulfill for the most part on one need before the the motivations inside of the next need start to become um, important to a person and that once you have sort of crossed that threshold though you don't necessarily go backwards so that people will once they have been able to meet some of those needs and the other one is that the boundaries are very fuzzy on this that it, they sort of blend from one into other so as you start to fulfill the the importance of the needs of let's say for example safety that uh, love and belonging start to become more important even though it's not just like Boom, like stepwise motion. I'm now on to loving and belonging. You just wake up and change out your your drawers for loving and belonging drawers <laughs> rather than safety drawers. Yeah, and Maslow know. Maslow specifically said that, right? Like it's not just a bunch of researchers that are going back and be like, eh, Maslow was kind of iffy about that. Maslow kind of went back and said that the, the there aren't hard lines with this, that, that there is that little bit of transcendence between each hierarchy, a little bit at least. Right. Yeah. No, he had that. He seemed to have that approach built into what he was discussing. He also, there was the idea that sometimes people might look like they're moving backwards through it. And he really felt like there, that would be more of a facade than a reality. Um, and it also could be the case that this is going to be a little bit different across different cultures and that some of these things might overlap a, in a way that you do see some things that are maybe more important at a higher level playing as a motivation, even though mostly you have not met your needs of a lower level, just because again, it's sort of fuzzy and those boundaries are a little unclear and it's uh, that those things move in that, in that order for the most part. But as I said, if it is the case that you can have an entire group of these needs reversed in a way that's almost unpredictable, but let's just say that it can happen at all. That does sort of undermine the, idea of that there is a hierarchy that these need to progress from one order to another so for example if i say food and fruit and watermelon those are there's a very clear hierarchy and i'm talking about food is all of these things that one can eat and fruit is all of these seed things that one can eat and uh, and watermelon is one specific type of those. And then you can get even more specific from there. But uh, there's a very clear order of ranking those. And with respect to needs, the order is a little less clear. And partially because these categories don't necessarily refer to a hard objective thing in reality. They really refer more to the kinds of values and, and things that are important to a particular individual in such a way that they will be motivated to work toward those things and that certain other things will become more or less available or important as people, I guess, develop and grow. Yeah, that makes sense. So, uh, so it's kind of like, uh, kind of like this, this pyramid of 
giving you it almost gives you like a little bit of a framework maybe to discuss or conceptualize issues around motivation right so if that's the goal right or like i mean it, does, it maybe doesn't really account for that but it kind of gives you kind of a starting point or a thread to start pulling to talk about motivation right would you uh maybe yeah not? and that that no that is a perfect segue into what what I want to talk about next, which is um, the idea that there are often going to be multiple motivators of behavior in any given situation for any given person. And so it's never going to be so clear as this is motivated by fulfilling on this particular need as much as it is there. There's a lot of things going on. And so any particular situation may require more than one of those basic needs that are going to have motivators that may work together and may even compete with one another. So for example, you might have I'm going to go like sort of weird meta, I don't know what kind of example, but let's, let's imagine, yeah, let's imagine, for example, you have uh, a, a tribes person who is grown up and lives in a situation in which there is food is they're always hunting they're always foraging they're always trying to get food in their particular situation and at the same time they have found a lot of value in establishing order and uh, rules inside of the community that they live in um, and so that the following those rules might be that um, need for food even though they are constantly deprived of food even though they're constantly under threat of illness Um, and so even though those more basic needs are there you might have those two things competing where they might have to make a decision is this you know is this a time where i go out and try and find more food because we desperately need it or do i not because maybe we're being threatened with something else and our safety is at risk and so now is not the time for food now is the time to protect my family that's not necessarily like an example that that Maslow would give. And it doesn't even really necessarily break it. What I'm really just trying to say is that there are so many contextual features of any particular situation in which you're making a decision that there are going to be multiple motivators that are involved in sort of pulling you one way or the other. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, he kind of digs into that too. The example that he gives is an example of eating, right? So he talks about the possibility of actually eating for the sake of filling up your stomach versus eating for comfort or amelioration of other needs, right? So, like, I don't know if you've ever eaten a pint of ice cream because you're sad. I I may have done that at some point. I've done it because I was bored. <laughs> there you go. So, so um, I'll... And so you're bored. I'm sad. We've got some stuff to work out. But (laughs) so at the end of the day, what you're really looking at, though, is you're you're kind of digging into the idea that like it wasn't necessarily that 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 need to eat was being met. But the possibility of like, you know, maybe in that regard, esteem was being met or maybe just like even just having an activity, a meaningful day activity, that potential need is being met on some level. Yeah, it's a great point. And Maslow also did suggest that he believed it would be possible to analyze any one single action of an individual by examining which needs were or were or not being satisfied um, in that particular uh, situation. So I feel like that approach to it really suggests that he did believe this was a, a relatively adequate I don't want to say heuristic, but a tool for understanding why we do what we do. And I think he felt that it was comprehensive and sufficient enough that it would cover a lot of the ground for these things um, and that it could really uh, answer that question when looking at a single uh, individual. And it's it's interesting because he kind of, going back into his history, he had subscribed to that behaviorism component. And, and now he's kind of going into this idea that he can analyze a single act or a single behavior in relation to the context which we're going to talk about a little bit more later anyway, but that's a very behaviorist approach to 
looking at needs and motivation and single singular incidents of behavior. Yeah, it does. Uh, it, it makes sense that he would he would bring that piece in, given his his sort of history with that um, and his educational background. He also did discuss the extent to which there were multiple determiners of behavior. And interestingly, inside of this, obviously, he, he said that not basic needs are not going to be the thing that always drives behavior. And, and that makes sense, given the fact that the general assumption here is that you can rise above those basic needs and then other things will take precedent over those uh, needs. But interestingly, he also made the claim that um, not all behavior may be motivated, uh, which is fairly surprising to me because at that point, you're either saying that this theory or hypothesis works for some, but not all of human behavior. And I, but I'm not clear on what, what line would be drawn. And like, it's not necessarily inappropriate to say this is uh, an analysis that works some of the time and not all of the time, but we have to identify, well, what are the parameters under which it works some of the time and not all of the time um, and under, and have rules around that. Because if that's not the case, then you can either say it's got, it's got to be all or nothing unless, unless you know what those like limits are going to be. Does that sort of make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think that, and I think that's where kind of he, as he's defining this and he kind of, it's almost like, um, he kind of backtracks a little bit and he's like, you know, this is what it is. And it's like, ah, oh, it might be a little fuzzier than that guys. Like, oh, I don't know if I quite said that. Like it kind of is digging into that a little bit where he's saying that it may be motivated or may not be motivated, but we don't really know. And that sort of limits the potential utility of this of, of this idea that he had of the hierarchy of needs. But not to say that it, it wouldn't be useful, just to say that sometimes this will work and sometimes it, it won't. Now, one specific example he did give around uh, a determinant of behavior that does not, at least according to him, involve a motivator is the idea of there being some isolated external event or stimulus that would have an effect on behavior that might and I think he probably was thinking of this with respect to some of the reflex research that had been done with Pavlov and Watson and, and others. I don't really know. I'm just guessing that that may have been one thing because there was a very clear example of this is a this is an event that has a reaction um, that that gives rise to reaction out of a person or an organ, you know, a dog in, the, in Pavlov's case, but out of some animal of some creature, including people. Um, and if that can happen and we see that it can, then that doesn't necessarily involve these motivators. So maybe that's just where he was drawing the line there. But again, I'm just, I'm not totally clear. Um, and that's the case. And the people on the other side of that would simply say, well, we think that ours is the thing that uh, motivates most or uh, accounts for most of behavior and that um, where ours starts to fall apart, you might be able to squeeze in a little sliver of the hierarchy of needs. And what I mean by that is, Let's say he was throwing this at something like, okay, well, we know that there's these reflexes things. So this accounts for most behavior, but then there's some reflexes that also happen to external stimulus. And that's where the hierarchy doesn't really apply. Well, I think that if I were on the side of the reflex researchers, I might say, well, we've really seen that reflexes account for um, pretty much all of behavior, but there are some things that people do that seem like they're maybe motivated by something a little bit different where they don't, there's not a clear uh, like reactive behavior that's clearly due to the some some kind of causal stimulus as there are with the salivating dogs example. And uh, so maybe that's where, you know, we could say that a hierarchy of needs, it might make sense. And neither one are right and neither one are wrong because they're both based off of an incomplete sample and an incomplete analysis of the event. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think that kind of goes into the next part where, you know, uh, where he talks about this concept of closeness to basic needs, right? So he does mention something along the lines of a degree of closeness to basic needs and a degree of motivation uh, where some, and, and this is kind of where he digs into this idea that 
Some behavior may be motivated. Some may not be motivated at all. Some may be weakly motivated. Some may be highly motivated. So it's just this kind of like the spectrum or this uh, range of motivators that that occur that that kind of impact these behaviors in relation to those needs. And it's almost like a spectrum more than anything else. Like, and he doesn't really, I don't know that he really specifies any sort of measure for that. No. And I mean, it sort of gives the idea that maybe one day people will be able to quantify this and do that, you know, rigorous mathematical sort of uh, analysis of what's going on here. If the the idea that there might be something like degrees or variations. And I, I also think that it makes logical sense for him to um, probably argue that there are going to be these motivators that are not of equal value in terms of how they affect behavior across these different needs and even within a a simple need. So like, let's say you're at the level of esteem and that there might be certain things that are motivating for you, but some, some of those that are all in favor of uh, fulfilling on that need of esteem for yourself and from others, but some of them might be a lot more important than others. And so there might be these motivators that are out there, but they're kind of weak and there might be motivators that are out there that are very strong and that that would account for some of the differences that you might see with respect to people who are, I guess, in that stage of the hierarchy, if you will. All right. So lastly, he also discussed the difference between expressive behavior and coping behavior, where he talks about uh, expressive behavior doesn't really try to do anything or accomplish anything. It's more of a reflection of the personality, whereas coping behavior has a functional purpose or a goal-seeking type of purpose. So basically, the example would be like expression would be you know, it might be something along the lines of vocalizing some kind of distaste in something or uh, maybe even just kind of singing in the shower. That might be more expressive, whereas like something purposeful might be to obtain, uh, you know, a basic need like gathering food, seeking shelter, you know, or something along those lines. Or even like going into work early to try and earn your way to a promotion, I think would be one of those more um, coping behaviors. Sort of like, you know, I need to make more money, so I'm going to try and get a promotion, which means I need to do these things. And so that seems like that's more that reactive dealing with things. With the expressive, as he says, that reflection of personality is sort of just, this is something that is personally important to you. And so that seems like another place maybe where he's sort of breaking down the, these are things that are inside of the hierarchy versus these are things that are not at least that's the way it seems to me yeah that makes sense all right well as i always love to talk about what's the point in something like this is there any utility how useful is this thing is it effective what can we do with it is basically the argument i'm always going to level at something is (laughs) is whether or not we can use it for something useful um and i think it's always also worth considering can we use it for something harmful because that can be it Another thing to say, we have a tool here and it maybe works well and it could be extremely damaging. And unless it works extremely well, it's probably not worth it. It's that whole cost benefit analysis or like risk benefit analysis sort of thing. So anyway, where I'm going with this long ramble of mine is is the idea of uh, how this is used. And people have actually tried to uh, apply this hierarchy of needs specifically in teaching and classroom management. And um, so Maslow looks at the individual as a whole, as this sort of a holistic, if you will, approach. And that means that he's considering their physical, emotional, social, and intellectual qualities and determine how those sort of things impact learning. And that that is all sort of wrapped up in how someone might go, go about structuring a educational or academic environment. 
Yeah, that could, that could see that. That makes sense. So he takes a holistic approach rather than observing the behavior to a response in the environment. So the example he gives in the classroom environment would be a student's physiological needs must be met before cog- cognitive needs can be met. Basically, if a student is hungry, they can't focus. And I could see how that would make sense working with some learners. Uh, you know, if they have some kind of disruptive type of need not being met, then I could see where that would get in the way of that cognitive need being met. But who's to say that that's even a need for that person? Like, do they need to read? I am Sam. (laughs) Possibly. (laughs) So, and and, and he kind of talks too about like, you know, same goes with self-esteem. So a student must be, must feel valued, respected, supported within the environment in order for them to progress academically. So basically within the classroom, if the majority of their needs aren't met, then learning can't be as effective. Is that, that's kind of what he's getting at here, right? Yeah, and I take beef with this, and I don't know if this is the place to go into why, or if I should bring about this. I should bring this back up later when we go over some of the criticisms. But yes, that is an implication of this, and this is an implication that has made its way into classrooms and exists today on a relatively large scale. And so, and I don't, and I think there's more to it. So, what do you think? Should I should I unpack this now, or should we do it when we get to the criticisms? Spill your tea, man. Spill your tea. Okay, we're doing this. It's just happening. (laughs) Here, here's the thing. What we have seen is that when you support a child in in terms of satisfying their academic needs such that they can progress through something competently and successfully, then the self-esteem comes after that. So if you get someone fluent at reading, then they start to really enjoy reading and they they feel good about themselves in terms of their reading. If you simply tell a kid that they're a great human being and that they're awesome, there's actually some research to show that they're less likely to succeed and try hard. And just building their esteem actually doesn't necessarily facilitate them doing well academically it can it can either do nothing or do the opposite or it's sort of like well it doesn't matter if you can't do basic math or read you're just a swell person and you don't need to be you don't need to be competent in anything in life and and obviously they're not going to say those things specifically to them but if the whole idea is just make you feel good about who you are while that seems all nice and dandy what we've seen time and time and time again is that just getting them good at at what they're doing, the outcome of that is that that competent that confidence and that self esteem and that recruitment of uh, praise from others. So, I guess one of the things that goes missing inside of this oftentimes is that if they don't get it right away, then the approach is well, they're just never going to get it, or this is taking too long, or even and again, not that anyone would actually say this, but. In some way, the child is made to feel stupid because they aren't getting accomplished. So it's really just move at the level of the individual, progress them through as quickly as you can. So you basically want to take the largest amount of information that is manageable for that person and have them progress through them in in those kind of steps. And if you do that, then every step feels relatively easy. It's a little bit challenging, but they can do it, right? And then they get better and better at doing that version of it such that they can do the next version even better still, even though it's a little bit harder than the one they just did. And you do that and, and you find where what my job is working with individuals and, and doing teaching in a one-on-one setting. And we see that when they start to get fluent at these things, that becomes their favorite thing to do. And oftentimes it's hilarious to me that right when they first start, they'll try it and it's really difficult. And they'll say, I hate this. Like, I, never, I don't want to do this. I want to do something else. And we just keep, you know, we're not, 
we're not like you know mean to him or anything, but we just keep asking him to try, and we build in you know lots of rewards and stuff like that. We try and keep it light and fun, and as long as they keep trying, they start getting better at it, and as as they get better and better at, it, then they will often say like, "This is my favorite thing to do," even though they used to hate it. And again, like the the product of them getting good at it was uh, was that self esteem and confidence piece, not that we were like, "Well, we're just going to tell you how wonderful you are until you feel like you're willing to try this." Um, that just doesn't seem to work. So that was a, that was a very long tangent, but I appreciate the space to talk about it. So that ends our segment on hot takes with Abraham. So we're <laughs> going to go in the next rest, the next part of this. <laughs> no, so I agree because science agrees, right? And there's some literature out there that says, suggests that, like you know, even complimenting kids and individuals on traits and not specific behaviors is problematic, right? Like calling a kid, like it actually causes more self-esteem issues later when you're like, oh, you're so smart, you're so smart. And then later they're like, I can't get this because I'm so smart. Why am I not getting this? I'm having a hard time later. So there's actually some research saying that like, don't call your kids smart. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I don't but, know if but, that's the take on there. But it's more about like, you know, you know, give them descriptive praise on things that they're doing well. Yes. That, on things I, that they're doing and not what they are. Right. Yeah. The whole like immutable characteristic of you are whatever, you are smart or you are stupid or you are whatever. It's more likely to result in better performance to talk about what they're specifically doing that is praiseworthy. So, yes, you're totally right. Yeah, there you um, go. And science agrees. But I don't <laughs> you can tell your kid that they're smart. Um, yeah, that's okay. But I think gen like as a general statement and not as a like you just did this thing, therefore you're so smart. Um, but you like look at how awesome you just did like you got ninety percent of these correct. That's really cool. Um, and that specific descriptive praise. That's a that's a good recommendation, I think. There you go. All right. So so there are some concerns with Maslow's theory, right? We're going to dig into that a little bit. Some that I've voiced already. I've decided I'm going to call that little tirade I went on Abraham versus Abraham. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's fantastic. <laughs> so anyway, um, obviously, we, and we've talked about this a little bit, but one of the most significant limitations and criticisms that has been leveled at um, at Maslow's theory is that, I mean, his his methodology, his rel- almost utter lack of empirical determination and assessment of these of these things, it it becomes extremely difficult to measure and understand and interpret and provide any kind of like important analysis about something if you don't have a clear objective description of the thing that you're trying to measure and instead are just relying on sort of a subjective scale. So that's that's one of the the main concerns. Another one, another one of the concerns that we talk about is how to actually measure this stuff. So how do we know that a need is met? You know, uh, we talk about, you know, somebody maybe not being hungry, but that's still pretty subjective, right? Or, you know, what's the, what's the definition of safety? So we don't know what, if there's like some kind of operational definition for, uh, when a a need is actually met or even really what a need is. Like we kind of have some examples of what needs are, but don't really have a specific definition of what needs are per each individual that we come across. And I think it's always worth pointing out that it's not that we're saying like the quantification God is everything and that, you know, if you can wrap numbers to something, then you're doing good science because you can wrap numbers to things and be doing totally nonsense, non-science, we'll call it that. But the point being here is that if you're going to make recommendations, if you're going to use this to make clinical decisions and give advice about how to work with children or individuals or prisoners or war veterans or whatever is going to be the case, referencing previous episode, that... 
it, it becomes very important to start having more specific criteria that are anchored to this. If it's just going to be like a philosophical general interpretation of this is just sort of how things seem to work sometimes, I think, then fine, that's okay. But from that, you can't really make specific recommendations. And if this is a real phenomenon, then it can be measured in reality. And in some capacity, it can be measured in reality. And people have developed ways of doing this. We'll get into it in a second. But the extent to which you could specifically say that a need is being sufficiently met such that you can predict a subsequent need will become important, it just doesn't really exist. You have just sort of sub subjective, arbitrary ratings, and that's about all you can have because of the ambiguous and abstract nature of these concepts. That makes sense. So, and I think another part of it too is that I don't know that he really is able to objectively define things like like parts of the hierarchy, right? Like self-actualization. So, in particular, the qualities that are listed to fulfill self self-actualization need to be taken from the biographies and writing of people that he himself has identified as self-actualized. So, like people like Lincoln, Jefferson, Einstein, Beethoven. You know, these Wait, are people. So so basically, he just decided that those were self-actualized and so decided to analyze their writings to make that determination? Yeah, that's pretty much what he did, right? And uh, I mean, uh, who move. knows? Yeah, that's uh, that's that's uh, something else from for a scientist. <laughs> that's just, I don't know how to put that, but that's something else. <laughs> it's I would appear, I mean, even from that list, you could see a gender bias and also a possible racial bias, right? Like you're talking about a bunch of white guys. It's true. <laughs> so... Maslow, you got some, we need some multicultural competencies in here. So it, the problem is that, you know, these are subjective and really not anchored in any sort of common characteristics, identifiable characteristics. He's just identifying these people as self-actualized. And now he does kind of dig into, um, you know, where I said before the sample is limited to white males who are highly educated. If you could argue that, that those guys are self, that, that are, they're highly educated. If that's something that you want to dig into, I think based on IQ test, maybe they could be, but that's a whole, that's refer back to that episode <laughs> about well, uh, IQ testing. I think but. He, he, uh, I mean, you can certainly look at at least their sort of pedigree in academia and the degrees that they was, that they received as part of their uh, special training. And, and you can make the case that that is by definition educated. And many of those people were, I don't know how well educated Lincoln and Jefferson were. Actually, I'm fairly confident Lincoln didn't have a lot of formal education and, and sort of self-taught a lot of things and his parents taught him stuff. But any, the point being that you do have these, uh, these intelligent, I'm going to say very prominent historical figures in these, in this particular case, were all white males. Um, but you were moving on to talk about that. He, uh, he did expand that little sample of his to uh, include some other people of a different demographic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So he did actually take the time to study some females in, in history. You know, he references Eleanor Roosevelt and Mother Teresa, but the sample you know, is your, small. Your everyday woman, basically. <laughs> yeah, you know, no big deal. And uh, <laughs> but the problem was that, you know, the sample is small. It's not generalizable. Um, can't be made to other females or those of lower social class. So like he couldn't really apply these types of characteristics or qualities of self-actualized people to people that weren't prominent figures in their cultures or in society in those moments. Right. Um, and I think we've already touched on this a bit, but one of the other criticisms is the, the fact that it's really difficult to empirically test what self actual, what self actualizing, whether it's present and, and very difficult to tell even what it kind of is, um, which makes it difficult to tell whether or not it's present. Um, but you know, it just goes hand in hand with the things that we've discussed about the fact that we don't, 
not knowing what these things are, it's hard to say whether or not we can definitively actually say whether or not they have been met, right? All right. So one of the other criticisms is that there's an assumption that the lower needs must be satisfied before a person can even achieve a higher need. And he kind of discusses that in order for needs that the needs may be different per each individual. Right. So safety may take precedence over basic needs and things like that. And that also that needs don't have to be 100 percent fulfilled before moving up the hierarchy. I know we touched on this a little bit, but there's some specific examples that are that are culture specific. Right. Yeah. That some of the cultures and places around the world where people had lived in poverty and were in extremely unsafe locations and yet still took up other, I guess, maybe higher needs. And I think transcendence is the one that has really stood out to me is that people in times of significant deprivation from basic resources, even having grown up in that, will still uh, worship a deity and um, and will, that's what I'm looking for, they'll observe religious traditions that are a part of the culture in which they, uh, which they were raised. And there's an example of Van Gogh was living in poverty yet still was motivated by those sort of higher needs of aesthetic beauty and of, um, of self-description and, uh, and those things that even though he was sort of severely deprived. And, you know, it's possible that Maslow would make the argument that when he was younger, and I just don't know about this about Van Gogh, but um, when they were younger, that they were able to progress through those basic needs and they were able to be physiologically, those physiological needs were satisfied and then those safety needs were satisfied and then those lovingness and belonging needs were satisfied. And even though they then fell in hard times and they were sort of constantly in need of something that they had already passed through those stages and that's why they were able to be motivated by things like esteem. He might make that case. That I just don't fully know. Um, but there are examples of these sort of things where even people who grow up in these situations will sort of find motivation in things that seem like they're well out of reach out of someone who's struggling to survive every day of their life. And okay, the next part that we really need to tackle and dive into is I think breaking this down, so we've really been talking about sort of the general criticisms of this, but what we have not really discussed yet is what does all of this mean? How do we understand this and start to make sense of it? And and rather than try and say, well, we can't measure it and it's too ambiguous and all that sort of thing, which is what we have been saying, I say, how can we conceptualize this in such a way that it is grounded in objective, empirical facts and data? Okay. And so I want to begin by revisiting the episode of motivation, which we did a whole episode on in episode 15, I believe, um, that was called a deep dive of motivation. It was about a year ago. And and understanding essentially how the motivation works. And so we'll do sort of a recap of that right now. And the first thing that you can understand is that motivation is essentially an incentive. If you understand the concept of an incentive, that is something that is in place that one will work toward in a way. And there's a lot of different ways that that could look. You could incentivize finishing something early. You can incentivize doing more of something. You can even incentivize getting someone away from you by saying like, you, you might argue that if you're at a bar and somebody's talking to you constantly and you really just want them to go away so you can hang out with your friends, you might be like totally um, annoying to them to the point that uh, you're incentivizing them leaving you by making it so like something else is better than where you currently are because this sort of situation sucks. That that could be a way of describing what's going on there. And so that's still a little bit vague. So let me, let me give you an example of what I mean. Or I'm going to give you the technical definition, which is when we're talking about motivation, it is any contextual situation that makes a particular outcome seem appealing. That's the most general way I can sort of say it, right? So for example, going to the most basic one, when I have not eaten for several hours, let's say 
eight hours. Like the that contextual situation of having not eaten for that period of time is going to make food generally much more appealing, such that I will work to get food. Now, if I just had an all-you-can-eat sushi buffet, and I am I feel like what's left of what I ate is still in my esophagus somewhere, and I if I have one more atom of calories, I will explode. Then at that point, food is not going to be an appealing uh, outcome for me. I will not work. I will specifically avoid work to avoid having more food. Um, <laughs> In that, in that particular situation. So you can apply that filter to pretty much everything that any organism that has a brain, maybe even not, any organism just does, um, in that you have these these situations in which some contextual, contextual factor of that situation makes a particular outcome appealing. I'll give you another one. If you're at work and your um, boss comes sort of walking through the main floor where you're working, you might sort of sit up and get really on task and look like you're working really hard while your boss is walking through the room. And in that particular case, you are, uh, that contextual situation of your boss walking through the room has increased the outcome of avoid being spoken to by boss that it is. Um, and that is an outcome. Like that is still a thing. If they successfully walk by without stopping or talking to you, then you have uh, maybe successfully completed or, or you've, you've successfully reached that outcome. And so again, like if we, if, we understand motivation in that way, then the type of outcome becomes less important. Unless you understand the nuances of, or don't understand, maybe the nuances of the situation you're in. Like if you don't have any idea what it means for your boss to come talk to you, maybe you don't make any effort and they come over and talk to you and you start to learn that, you know. But otherwise, the features of the situation, as long as they have some relevance to how you understand that situation to be, then that that context will set the occasion under which certain outcomes seem appealing and will therefore motivate or incentivize behavior that work toward those outcomes. And again, like in that particular instance, what the outcome is doesn't really matter. Even what the context is, it doesn't really matter except into except insofar as it tells you what kind of outcomes are going to be valuable. And so that kind of an analysis really grounds this in terms of things that we can definitely know and observe. Like if I see someone who is, if if I'm looking at the situation where I see a worker and then their boss walks by and they're really getting hard to work, I might look at that and say, okay, well, what hierarchy of needs are they fulfilling on right now? Probably safety or something like that, or maybe like belongingness. They really want to be liked by their boss or their coworkers or, or something. So they're really working hard right when they're, uh, right when they're coming through. And yeah, maybe, um, you know, I could sort of post talk do that, but I could really also tell you that like, if I understand essentially what the relationship is with the boss and, and the people that I could predict what they're going to do when the boss walks by. Um, I could also tell you that like what they're going to do if I started, I could tell you what sort of things that you could change about the boss or the worker or that situation. And that would also, and then predict what kind of outcome you would get, and I'd probably be right most of the time. Taking into consideration, I don't know everything, and there are other factors that are beyond the scope of that one room. Like someone who just lost a family member who comes into work um, is not even going to respond to the same contextual cues as someone who's just sort of having a normal day. And so, like those are things that you're never going to know everything that's going on with somebody that would that would be that would have that effect. But just generally thinking about when looking at situations in terms of those contextual variables and how they would specifically relate to what kind of outcome seems appealing in that moment, that's kind of, I feel like that's all you need. Uh, that satisfies a lot of it. I mean, what are some other examples? Do you have any other examples of things that you can think of that are like uh, just a, a, a motivation or incentive? Yeah. I mean, I think that my first example that, that came to me was just thinking about being sick, right? So, you know, I played in bands, 
growing up, like you, we would play in these loud bands and go to a concert. But if I'm not feeling well or if I have a headache, as great as like that social belonging might be, like I, I have more of a need to go take care of my health and safety. So like there, in, whereas like that's a preferred situation for me to be in a, in, a, in a musical context and be in that moment, that's preferred. But there are competing rewards in that place. And, and that actually kind of more satisfies that level of hierarchy, that hierarchy of needs in that moment where it's like my health and safety is going to take precedence over my need for belonging but that just get in, in another circumstance like if i'm it may be a couple hours since i've eaten but i'll spend time in a concert or be in that moment if i'm healthy you know so my my healthy need is met my health status and safety status is met but my need for belonging is going to take precedence over not overeating at that moment because there's more salient social reinforcers in that moment right there's more i'm getting more out of that social context than i would out of my basic you know physiological needs being met at that moment I'm just going to give one more quick example, one that's a little bit more complicated in terms of how you might seem to have various levels that are at work. And so I'm going to, I'm going to call this, I'm just making this up. This isn't like an official name, but I'm going to call this a needs analysis. Okay. So let's say you listener, Shane, whoever, that you come home after work and it's been several hours since you've eaten at least four or five hours. Okay. And so you're obviously at this point fairly hungry, depending on how used to eating you are and how much you ate last and yada, yada. Um, but let's say you also, so it's late in the evening and you have to drop off a document by tomorrow. You also know that your schedule tomorrow is completely crazy and you won't have an opportunity to drop that document off tomorrow. So you really only have a small window of time tonight to fulfill on that errand before the place that you need to go is closed. And so in that particular case, even though you're really hungry, you might make the decision instead to go take care of that thing that's really important. Okay, so let's talk through all of the sort of motivations and incentives that are in place here. First, you have this deadline that is a verbally created deadline, probably a rule that somebody gave you, or a you're fulfilling on a request that somebody has made, whatever it is. Someone said, even if it's you, this needs to be done by a certain period of time. So there's one. And another one being that you're that you're starving. You know, it's been X amount of hours since you've been to the sushi buffet. So, which I need to find that sushi buffet, by the way, wherever that is. Um, but <laughs> Nevada, <laughs> Nevada, I'm I'm on my way. So there's this there's this contingency or there's this motivation in place where you're you're starving. It's been hours since you've you've eaten. You need to get some food, right? So that that plays a big role in in kind of what your current set of behaviors might look like. And I didn't mention this earlier, but maybe you have a family or somebody there who's also been waiting for you so that, that uh, you could eat dinner together. So they might also be hungry. So that might be another sort of set of, of incentives that are sort of weighing on you. If I choose to go run this errand now, then I'm, they might be angry at me for making them wait to eat even longer. Um, or it might be that I choose to go ahead and just feed everyone, including myself, and that feels good and they're happy, but then I'm not going to get this thing turned in on time. And so there's the whole outcome of, well, if I don't turn this in on time, then maybe I don't get paid or I get in trouble or I lose an opportunity to participate in something that's really important to me. Um, I mean, there's there's so many things that are going on and even that so small, small, small example. And another example I had was thinking about maybe a, uh, there's a kid who he, he really wants to get out of the house when his parents are arguing and maybe he goes outside and he plays basketball. So what what do you think, Shane, would be at play in the hierarchy of needs sort of analysis of why this kid is outplaying basketball while his, while his parents are inside arguing with each other? 
Yeah, I mean, maybe, you know, parents fighting or kind of getting involved, it's, uh, it turns into a safety issue, right? Like maybe there's just, sure. a, you know, safety and security need, maybe some kind of order, like playing basketball, something he can control. So that makes sense being in that context. Yeah, perfect. I think you can maybe even argue that, like, uh, while that is one, maybe he's at the level where he's trying to be self-actualized, and he, if he goes and gets really good at basketball, then maybe he'll secure his future as someone who plays basketball professionally at some point in his life. And so uh, maybe that is part of what's driving his behavior. And, and in addition to that, there might be, like, thinking of the loving and belongingness is that doesn't really feel like it's being met in that current circumstance. So, you know, the big motivator now was going to be this other thing because the potential, I guess, reward of the loving belongingness thing is, uh, is not really available in that context, but there is definitely an, a reward that is available and that's getting good at basketball or playing basketball. Yeah. Or it might be that he's playing basketball with neighborhood kids. So maybe he's going to get that love and belonging he met through the, some community interactions. All right. And so now let's think of this in terms of, as I described before, that basic motivation description of understanding if you have a contextual situation where a particular outcome becomes more appealing. So initially we have that parents are fighting and you can imagine quite easily that in that making the fighting go away, even if that means removing yourself from that situation might be an appealing outcome and therefore going outside or, and going to do something else is going to uh, would be very well predicted inside of this context of this sucks and I want it to stop sucking and I can't control what's happening over there, but I can get myself out of here. Yeah. And that actually kind of speaks to, you know, when we talk, we're going to talk a little bit more later that there are simpler explanations for these events in these contexts. So my question goes back to this idea is like, what does the actual hierarchy here add to the scenario? Like, what does it do to help us conceptualize this really in a, in a, in a simple and useful way? If we can understand essentially what what those factors are, as I mentioned, that fit inside that contextual situation. So if it was just the case that it was a safety thing, then this kid could go out and do anything besides basketball. So we got to ask why basketball um, in that particular situation? Why doesn't he go outside and shoot a gun or ride a horse or learn to figure skate or climb a tree? You know, there's there's so many things or go hang out with friends. There's a lot of things that he could be doing. And so it's not just get out of the house. There is also the he specifically chose to go play basketball. OK, well, inside of that, we have that there's a general availability of a basketball and basketball hoop. Otherwise, he's not doing it. So I'm just going to assume that that's fair. And also, this is my hypothetical situation, so I can say whatever I want. <laughs> um, you can't take but, that away from me. That's right. And in addition to that, so you have the fact that there was an unpleasant situation he was able to escape from, and you also had access to something that is available and is uh, certainly in the reverse of that um, that unpleasant situation. This is something that is fun. Uh, so you have the, like, let's replace the thing, like, I'm in, in a situation right now where I'm not having fun, and there is not fun available to me, so let's go seek out fun. Um, and it could also be the case that let's go seek out relationships if those things are available. If they're not, then what else is he going to do? And so, yeah, I think that the question is very legitimate. Do we Is something being added by that hierarchy? Yeah, and so I think that 
kind of going back to your analysis and looking at that context, I think it's important to recognize that what we know about the effects of all behavior and kind of digging into that piece, right? I guess what it comes down to is as, as you're looking at that analysis of the behavior and you're looking at that context, it, we really, we know more about behavior than this kind of lends itself to. So I think it's important to kind of look at what those effects of behavior are, like really what, let's dig into that for a second and, and kind of discuss like, what are those factors that explain this away a little bit better? We understand essentially that there are always sort of two main categories of things that are involved in determining the behavior that's going to occur. And in each one of these main categories has subcategories. So people who get all riled up as soon as I tell you the categories know that I'm, I'm being general and not specific. The, one of the main categories is the biology of the living thing that we're talking about, be it an animal or, or a person or whatever. And a lot of people have, you know, they will insist that we say non-human animal, animal and some people have problems with that. Any living thing that seems to mostly apply to maybe besides plants, um, but that you have the biology of an organism, and that includes things, those subcategories like the brain, the genes, the physical structures of the of the being that we're talking about. Um, those are all things that are going to be part of it. And the second category is the developmental history with certain contexts um, with that organism. So let me say what I mean. Um, as, I, as I said, basically with the biology, we're talking about the brain, the body, and the genes and what those things do or can do. And then the developmental history is essentially what you have learned from similar situations or what you can extrapolate from um, some other situations to the one that you're currently in. And in understanding essentially what's going on in the situation that, that you're in. So that's the environmental piece of this is that you have that contextual uh, situation with what you have learned um, from similar situations in conjunction with your brain and genes and biology and all of those things. Those are the, the two big things. And when we account for all of those factors, we pretty much got it. We don't need other things. And again, that always just comes back to asking the question, what does the hierarchy add? Yeah. I mean, when it comes down to it, we can recognize and actually explain away a lot of this stuff through that old nature versus nurture argument, but it really is nature and nurture. Like you're, it's, it's what you're born with and what you're exposed to that explains a lot of these different things that people do, right? It, that kind of really encompasses why we do what we do. So when we talk about this hierarchy, it doesn't really add anything that we don't already know through these other contexts. So, you know, what we're looking at when these two, these two categories that you mentioned are, it, they're, they're simpler explanations. There's more parsimonious explanations for, for what's going on in those contexts. And, and we can take some time to really analyze it and look at that, the molecular components of those situations and really determine that there's probably something simpler going on than this person's not self-actualized. Yeah, and it's more than just those variables, as you were talking about with the two categories that I was I was discussing, it's more than that they explain most of behavior. We haven't found a place where they don't work to explain behavior. You know, it, they, they really seem sufficient to the task. My intention has been with these two episodes to be as fair and even-handed with uh, Maslow as I, as I possibly could be, and I don't think that he was completely crazy or that this was completely useless. It just make I, I always want to ask that question what else, what, what can we learn from this? What does it really add? And maybe what, you know, we can take from Maslow's analysis is it adds sort of general categories of motivation that tend to be present for most people in a lifetime. 
and that's fine. You know, sort of a way of describing that that's maybe just part of being human is you're going to run into those sorts of things. Okay. You know, I want to be, I want to be fair to that as being a possibility in terms of how we actually explain and predict and influence um, behavior and choices that people make. It seems like it's not going to be a particularly robust, I guess, philosophy to use. It, it, it's just, it, it doesn't, it doesn't add anything to the things that we already know that sort of work. Yeah. It seems like more that it gives us a, it gives us a series of threads to pull for further investigation, right? Like it doesn't really explain anything. It doesn't really give us not, or at least not in like a, a really salient way. It gives us just this kind of idea that we can, we've got these lines of investigation that we can really dig into that lead back to those two categories you mentioned uh, to some degree, you know, I think, and I think that's kind of really the core of what I'm getting out of it. Um, as somebody who has studied this for a little while, like just, sure. just kind of identifying that this isn't the end all be all. It's not really the catch all for every human behavior. And it doesn't really account for the individual. It's just kind of like, Hey, this is some, some things to account for in the large spectrum of what motivates humans. Yeah, that sounds great. So, all right, so let's dive into um, some of the research that's been done with Maslow's hierarchy, just so that we have, we've talked about this a little bit and sort of been teasing that it would come up. So we're going to go through this really quick. So in 2011, Lewis, or Luis maybe, Tay, and Aid Diner. Diner? Di- yeah, D- Diner maybe. Uh, it's hard when you only read them, you know. <laughs> anyway, uh, they conducted a study across a sample of 123 countries from 2005 to 2010. They examined the association between the fulfillment of needs and subjective well-being. And this included life evaluation, positive feelings, and negative feelings as well. The fulfillment of needs included in the study were derived from Maslow, but also from past theories from other researchers, and that included the basic needs for food and shelter. Uh, It also accounted for things like safety and security. For social support and love. Feeling respected and pride in activities. Uh, Mastery. And self-direction and autonomy. And so eight sociocultural regions of the world were assessed. Uh, and they gathered information also from rural and poor populations. Yeah. And so the aim was to determine what are the associations of need fulfillment with subjective well-being. That's right. They um, Also, are these associations similar across cultures and do they generalize? So they also account for if, if a need is fulfilled or deprived, how does that affect subjective well-being? And is subjective well-being dependent on fulfilling other needs? And does this really count for things like societal needs? What are what about them? Uh, does this influence subjective well-being at all? And finally, are needs typically fulfilled in the order as described by Maslow? So Lewis and Diner found evidence of universality and also substantial independence in the effects of the needs on subjective well-being. They also found that the needs tended to be achieved in a certain order, but that the order did not have a strong influence on uh, subjective well-being itself. So in regards to life evaluation, uh, what they found was that this was associated with fulfillment of basic needs, uh, specific to positive feelings that were associated with social and respect needs. And that negative feelings were associated with basic respect and autonomy needs. In terms of society need fulfillment, uh, one of the fulfillment needs that that was actually being assessed by the study they may have an effect on the individual's personal need fulfillment, uh, but based on the results, it is better to live in a society with individuals who have their individual needs fulfilled and a society that is flourishing. All right. So in summary, based on the results of the study, it seems that the order of the needs tend to be achieved um, that there, t- there does seem to be a kind of order to it, but that, that order doesn't actually really have a very strong impact on subjective well-being for an individual. 
Yeah, and order and fulfillment of needs may vary based on country and condition. So, and that kind of wraps up what we talked about earlier in the talk too. Is like each individual cir- circumstances. Mm, it really dep- It really kind of alters the motivations. All right, so let's go ahead and wrap this on. This is this has been another long entry into the into the list. So <laughs> let's go ahead and uh, and bring it home in here. So I guess one of the things to begin with in talking about how we're going to conclude this is that Maslow offered at the very least, a general way of describing the kind of motivations that, that seem to exist for people. And that he was also, I didn't really say this in the, in the actual episode, plural, um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> he's describing a sense that with, in which people are supported and have the, um, have the things that they need to be sort of effective, productive people. And that, that was important. Like that's sort of the very least that we can say about it is he's arguing that people tend to do better when they have the things that they need to survive and thrive. And I think like that we are perfectly comfortable with. It is absolutely the case that people do tend to do better when they have the things that they need to survive and thrive. That's yeah, yeah, that's fine. And the fact that he wrapped a hierarchy around that, that's also fine. Um, I think that it sort of generally describes what's going to exist for people in sort of the course of a normal human lifetime. And that that's not an, that's not a bad heuristic to use when we're talking about um, how we go about thinking and how, in terms of how we might help and facilitate um, certain cultures or uh, help people who are uh, disadvantaged in one way or another, you know, Um, and just thinking about how, how do we think about, humans as as a race as a species and not in the segregate groups and how do we bolster our own species and and just really um, make it as um, as robust and as uh, strong and as responsible as we possibly can and thinking you know Maslow's hierarchy is not a totally inappropriate or bankrupt way of thinking about those kind of ideas like sure in approaching this pragmatically and scientifically it just it doesn't lend itself particularly well to that kind of scrutiny and really instead we have a better conceptual framework that can be applied to specific situations so that we can understand motivation and incentives and rewards we can understand the biological components and the environmental components that account for the kinds of choices that people make and that when we are at the it's sort of the bottom line issue of these are the actions that need to happen if we need to see change in a particular issue. We need to, in that particular circumstance, account for what we actually know about behavior in terms of the the biology of the organism and the and the environmental context and developmental history of the of the individual that we're that we're thinking of. And so, I guess I'd summarize this whole thing, you know, both both episodes, just by saying that. You know, Maslow's hierarchy is, I think, a useful thing to know what it is, um, and it's not really going to explain behavior all that particularly well. But I think that's all I kind of have to say about it. Yeah, I mean, I and I think that I would agree. I, you know, kind of my takeaway too is that it it paints a it paints a pretty general picture of uh, the overall human experience. I think maybe you know it kind of talks it, sure. it try it it does its best to account for what somebody may experience over a lifetime and and I and I don't know that it accounts for idiosyncratic variables at all. I don't know that it, I mean it definitely doesn't. I should say that I don't know. I definitely I know that it doesn't. Um, but I think right. it, it it gives you it gives us. I, I think for me at least, it gives me a, a nice li- a, you know line of investigation to look at from a scientific standpoint and to kind of like really dig into like what what it is about that that individual's experience that that attracts them to certain conditions certain rewards certain punishers like what really brings them into those those contexts and i think that that's probably 
for me, uh, what makes it really interesting is it's, it's not very useful in my daily practice, but it does give me a picture to kind of work with. Yeah, that's great. I like that a lot. And I, yeah, I don't, I don't really have anything to expand on that. <laughs> just, I, I like, I like that you phrased it in that way, especially talking about it in terms of it's not harmful. It's, it's just not going to be the thing that helps you make clinical decisions when you're faced with a challenge of someone who really needs help in the moment. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And it is, is particularly not going to guide how we should go about teaching uh, with respect to self-esteem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, I learned the new, the term uh, self-transcendence. And I feel like that is, I'm going to try and sprinkle that into meetings here and there. Love <laughs> <it>. At work. <laughs> yeah. Love it. That is our challenge to you listeners is self-transcendence. <laughs> okay, sweet. Um, well, before we wrap up really quick, I want to do a, just a really quick uh, listener mail. Um, that we have. I, w- I had some feedback on our little Albert episode and specifically Katie wrote in um, talking about how she thought that the little Albert experiment wasn't really, really what she just said was that conditioning happens a lot, whether or not you arrange it and that she doesn't have an issue with the premise of that study because all he did was deliberately set up a normal experience that are encountered by uh, babies sort of every day. For example, loud noises, animals, um, loud toys or toys that move really quickly and that to occur in certain temporal order with the purpose of sort of empirically demonstrating something that really important uh, happens specifically in this case that a lot of people think that fear of snakes, for example, is innate, but that she has a picture of her daughter when she was one year old looking at a snake and was just completely fascinated by it. So there really wasn't, and without any trace of fear, so there really wasn't any reaction to it, but that there's something that could be learned and, and probably would be learned as snakes are always painted as being fearful. I'm putting those words in there. She didn't actually say that. Um, but she said, I think we tend to attribute a lot more to evolution than it sometimes deserves and neglect to think about sort of the learning history and experience that, that people have with these. And that the uh, implications of the experiment are far-reaching beyond uh, fear responses. So, for example, why does a certain uh, scent of like um, perfume or cologne potentially have the effect that your partner is, uh, I guess, excited by that scent? Um, why do some people calm down when they smell laver- uh, lavender? Why does the sight of, she says, why does the sight of my children bursting through the door at the end of my day fill me with joy? So, um, and she gave the example of uh, her daughter being afraid w- uh, of the vacuum and that whenever they brought out the vacuum, uh, her daughter would just run and scream in terror. And she's like, what am I going to do? You know, not clean my house. And that her um, her third child is, is afraid of mail, like postal service mail, I guess. I um, she went on to say, babies experience fear and conditioning to new stimuli all the time. And uh, if we understand that, it doesn't help us to know uh, how to prevent it and how to help them. And if we if we understand that, then uh, doesn't that, that helps us to know how to prevent it and how to help them if it does occur. So if they develop those fears, how we can sort of deal with it. And so, you know, she thinks that Albert wasn't really harmed in the long run or even necessarily in the short run. We don't really know if he was afraid of rats and Santa settings outside of that context. And even when they did try and generalize it, um, they saw that uh, Albert did not necessarily have the same reaction in different situations to even the things that he'd been exposed to that were fearful. And so um, it's very likely that he wasn't afraid of those things outside of that. And so when he was exposed to the stimuli outside of the university where that test was being done, um, there would have been, there would have not been that association with the loud noise and therefore could have relatively quickly sort of deconditioned that learning that he had had with that fearful response. And so, and she also went on to add that having a fear of things like rats when living in a place like Baltimore is probably a good thing because the rats are the size of house cats, (laughs) (laughs) as she says. So, 
Anyway, um, I appreciate Katie writing in. She wrote in, and I asked if I could specifically use that example because it, I just thought it was such a, a great example to, to talk about those sort of things. So anyway, if you would like to tell us about your kids, then we're happy to hear from you. Um, you can uh, email us and listen to all, all of our information at the end. Um, I'm also going to go ahead and declare now that I'm going to start Although I don't actually use social media for the most part, I'm going to start actually looking at uh, SoundCloud and comments that show up there, and I'll be responding to uh, to those. So if you want to specifically reach me, Abraham, um, I do check the email, and then I'll also be looking at uh, SoundCloud comments. And uh, otherwise, you can reach us at uh, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all those places. So Sounds cool. good. Cool. All right. Well, this has been uh, another episode of Why We Do What We Do in your ears. Uh, so thank you for listening. This has been Abraham. And this is Shane. And we're out. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at WWD Podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O., Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day. One of the Chris one uh So saving that for an outtake. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, save that later. Um